Well, as I mentioned before, uh, this is the start of a new series looking at the entire Gospel of Mark. Not that we're going to look at every single verse and every single story that takes place in Mark, but we are going to be working from beginning to end in the Gospel of Mark. And because of that, it's probably a good idea to, since we're starting at the beginning, to give you a couple of things about the book of Mark itself that really sets it apart as unique and also things that we'll be seeing throughout our journey in Mark. Um, probably know if you open your Bible up to about two-thirds of the way in, you get to this thing called the New Testament, and the first four books are what we know as the first four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of those write about the life and times of Jesus, the Messiah, and his ministry, but they also are unique in that they write it from their perspective to a very unique audience. So, for instance, if you look at Matthew, Matthew was a Jew, and he writes to fellow Jews to try to show them that Jesus was their Messiah, the one from the Old Testament, prophesied of old. He's the fulfillment of all that. And so when you read uh, Matthew, what you see is you see Old Testament reference after Old Testament reference after Old Testament reference more than any of the other Gospels. Why? Because that's his audience. He's trying to convince them, hey, I'm showing you Jesus is the fulfillment, right? If you look at Luke, uh, you see Luke with a carefully crafted, detailed-oriented uh, gospel because he's writing to a friend named Theopolis. We talked about that in our last series right before Christmas. Uh, it's a friend Theopolis who seemed to have maybe a couple doubts, some skepticism, and so he gives him, here's this orderly account so that you can check it, you can see, here's, here's something to help you with your doubts, here's something to see that Jesus really is the Christ. You look at John. John kind of breaks away from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John says, you know, I'm not going to cover so much the whole life and ministry of Jesus. I'm actually going to zero in on some of his miracles, some of his signs, some of his wonders, some of his long narrative discourses, and and really give people a, a, a zoom in to those conversations, to the theology, to the deep teaching that's really there, and even almost dedicates almost a half of his gospel to the last week of Jesus' life, the, the most important week ever. So what separates Mark? Mark is a simple man, it seems, who writes to a simple audience. His audience seems to all be Greeks. Now, what does that mean for us? Okay, he's writing to Greeks. Well, these are people who didn't have the Old Testament scriptures, right? So when it came to them and their knowledge of Jesus, they knew nothing. They didn't know about the prophecies. They didn't know about the story, the history, and all that. They, they didn't know who Jesus was, which is maybe why Mark's gospel is the shortest of all the gospels, 16 chapters, Because Mark just wants to get to the point and tell you who Jesus is and what he did. And so Mark writes this short but action-packed, fast-paced, moving gospel to get to the point. Um, In fact, you'll see this word again and again, immediately. It comes up 41 times in the gospel of Mark, immediately. And Jesus was here, and immediately he was here, and immediately he did this. And it's just this constant moving thing because Mark just wants to get to the point. You're not going to see a whole lot of deep narratives, a whole lot of deep theological discourse. It's there, but he just wants you to see the point. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what Jesus did. And if you wanted to give kind of a theme, you want to give kind of an emphasis of the gospel of Mark, from beginning to end, what Mark sets out to show his readers, to show us, is that Jesus Christ came on a mission bound for a cross to save you and me and the rest of the world. And we as his followers, if we want to be his disciples, we don't just embrace him and his cross, but we embrace our own crosses as we follow him. Because what you're going to see, and I'm sure what several of you know, right? 
the forgiveness of the gospel is free. The grace of the gospel is absolutely unconditional, but that doesn't mean living a Christian life is a cakewalk. Easiest thing ever. Because that grace and that forgiveness constantly challenges you and me because what Jesus is doing is constantly calling us away from ourselves, away from our fleshy instincts, away from our worldly desires. He's constantly calling us away, and you will see constantly again and again in his teaching and his miracles, when you dive in, it's always going to cause friction with you and your sinful nature. It's always going to cause this, this tension, and it's going to challenge you. And sometimes it feels like death. It feels like you're taking up this cross. It feels like this pain, this torture. But what you see is it's actually liberating. You see it's life-giving, not just for this life, but for the next. So that's kind of the opening of Mark. So how exactly is Mark going to begin? Where is he going to start? Well, he doesn't start with a genealogy like Matthew might to show the ancestry uh, in his Jewish heritage. He doesn't start with this immaculate prologue like Luke. He doesn't start with the deep, the deep, the deep theology of John. No, what he does is, remember, he's a man of action. Let's just get right into it. Verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, you see that word good news. That's actually one word. That's where we get our word gospel from. Gospel literally means good news. And what's this good news about? It's about Jesus, the Messiah. Now, your translation might say Jesus, the Christ. That's okay. Christ, Messiah, same thing. Christ, the Greek word word of the Hebrew Messiah. All it means is the anointed one, the anointed king. It harkens back to the Old Testament. When God promised and uh, prophesied again and again and again, I will send an anointed king, right? Kings in those days were anointed. It's weird to us, but that's how it was. And this was his chosen anointed king to save his people. And you notice that what Mark wants you to know right away in the very first verse, in the opening, is he wants his audience, the Greeks who are reading this, you and I who are reading it some two millennia later, is that this isn't a book about good advice. It's a book about good news. Now, what's the difference between news and advice? Like, news is simply a reporting of events that actually happened, right? But advice is kind of something that someone might give you. It's a little subjective. Hey, this worked for me. You should maybe try this out. Check it, take it, leave it. It might work. It might not, depending on the variables, the circumstances, etc., etc. News is factual. News is concrete. It is cemented into history. Like it or not, it doesn't change the fact that this happened. And what Mark is trying to show you, was trying to show us, is that he is not going to give you a story of some random teacher who said, hey, I'm going to give you some good advice that you could maybe put into your life uh, to maybe have a better life, a better marriage, a better, be a better parent, be more successful in your life. Put a couple of these things into practice in your life. You could live your best life now. No, that's, that's not the news. This is not a book to help you out and say, put a couple things into practice for your sin, to up your chances with God. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, that is the promised and prophesied king who would come to save you and me and rescue you completely from your sins. It is the good news. All right, great. 
So how is he going to start? Where in Jesus' ministry is he going to start off with this good news? Well, you saw it in verses 2 and 3. Actually, right before Jesus' ministry begins, there was someone who came to lay a foundation to prepare the way for Jesus' ministry that we know as John the Baptist. Mark starts out with these two prophecies from Malachi 3, Isaiah 40, tipping off the fact that there would be this prophet who would come with one job to do. Prepare all of God's people so that they would not miss the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, coming out of the scene. How would he prepare them? So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And that baptism of repentance, I think, is something that is worth unpacking a little bit because it's been my experience that any number of Christians, myself included for a long time, we were really confused. So John's got a baptism, but then the Spirit is going to come at Jesus' baptism, and then Jesus is going to baptize with the Spirit, and then Jesus is going to institute a baptism. So is this baptism the same as that baptism? Was there baptism before this? Where did this idea of baptism come from? Uh, let's just dive into that real quick for a second. Uh, the word baptism, baptize, simply just the Greek word that means to wash, cleanse. And so if you look at the Jewish religion and you go backwards, you would see that they had a number of different cleansing bathing, washing ceremonies and rites uh, in their religion. Oftentimes it was with hands or maybe your clothes or maybe you washed your head. A couple of them were just like full body immersions as a way to kind of uh, get you to focus on the thing that defiles, the thing that makes you unclean, the sin, and how you get clean, how you get right, how you approach God. You need to be clean, right? Now, what's really interesting is when you do some digging, you find out that in the Old Testament, if you were a Gentile, a non-Jewish person who wanted to convert to Judaism, there was a rite in which involved an entire full bath, full body immersion, you would say, a full body baptism, you might say, as a way to say, hey, I am washing myself away from my old gods, from the old ways of life, and I am saying, nope, I am all about the new God that I've found. Now you get to John's baptism, and you find out that he's doing this baptism out in the wilderness some 20 miles away from Jerusalem, and you might expect, okay, so he's doing a baptism out in the Jordan River. Okay, so he's going to call just some more Gentiles out there. No. What John calls is not just for the Gentiles, but the Jews too. You need this baptism. You all need this baptism of repentance because you're all in the same boat. Regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your religious pedigree, regardless of your moral performance and how close you followed God's word and how close you've kept his law, you all need this baptism. You add it all up, and what John is doing is saying, if I'm going to prepare you for the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus the Messiah, then I first have to tell you the bad news that you are sinful and you need to repent. And at first that may seem completely counterintuitive, like the wrong advertising strategy entirely. Wait, John, so you, your job is to tell people this good news, and you're going to start doing that by telling them they're all dirty, rotten sinners, and they need to repent. And John might just simply say, yeah. 
Because you see, if you and I are going to really appreciate the good news, then you first have to appreciate the bad news about yourself. Think about it like this. Let's say scientists tomorrow discover the cure for cancer. You wake up, all these alerts, all these news stories, all these text messages from your friend on your phone. You, you turn on the TV, it's blown up, cure for cancer, found. How would that impact you? Well, if you're someone who doesn't have cancer, you'd probably say, this is pretty great. That cure is going to help countless people. This is, this is pretty good. But for you personally, outside of that, it doesn't really do much for you. But if you're someone who has cancer, I mean, this literally is life-changing news. Your, your value of that news just, just skyrockets to the nth degree. You think, my life is completely changed. It was, it was hopeless, and now it, I, I'm completely being saved. You get that. And John, it's like he's trying to say, not just some of you, but all of you have a soul that is sick-ridden with something worse than cancer. And you need to see that. Not just a few of you who maybe weren't from the right heritage or didn't grow up in the right family or right household or right religion. Every single one of you is in an utterly helpless, hopeless state, a soul that is sick, that you cannot save yourself. And what you need to do is I've got some good news. You, you need to see that. You need to repent. And he needs to have his whole audience think through this and really think through this idea of repentance and what that really means. And it's not just them who needed to think through it. It's us today, too. Because I think when it comes to this idea of repentance, still today in the church, it kind of gets maybe a little bit of a bad rap or, or at least a little bit of a misunderstanding, which is why I find a guy named Martin Luther really helpful. Uh, his 95 thesis, the first thesis that he gives out, I find it so helpful for this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In other words, repent, repentance, it's not just this one-time thing where you say, yep, all right, I'm a sinner. Can't do anything to save myself. I need Jesus. I cling to him. I'm done. But rather, repentance is kind of this characteristic of a Christian. It's a mark. It's a thing that a Christian is defined by this attitude of repentance, this constant turning away from sin, a constant daily, every single day, uh, changing of direction. That's what repent means, right? Change of mind, change of heart. It's kind of echoing the struggle of Paul in Romans 7. The good I want to do, don't do it. The evil I don't want to do, frustrated because that's what I keep on doing. And it's, it's this turning around. It's this turning away from that constantly every single day. And if you wanted a picture to kind of solidify this or, or help you uh, visualize this, look again at verse 3. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Now, this is from Isaiah 40, and ancient people would have understood this so clearly. Uh, before the Romans came along, and before they updated the, the world with uh, roads, roads in and of themselves were kind of a luxury. 
There were few and far between. You could have a couple towns uh, fairly close to one another and not a single road connecting them. Think of like the days of the Oregon Trail. There was no road. You just, you trailblaze. You, you, you found a way to get there. Maybe you knew the shortcuts. Maybe you knew the, 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 the little secret paths that you could take. But if you found out that a king was coming to your town, you know what you did? You grabbed the townspeople and you said, uh, we got to clear a path. We got to make a road. We got to make some sort of way for this king to come. So if there was a, a thicket of trees, then you would grab your axes and you'd say, we're going we're gonna to cut some trees down. We're going to carve a path. We're going to get the oxen out here and we're going to grab the carts and the ropes and we're going to move some of these boulders around and we're going to grab our shovels and fill in some of these low spot potholes and, and maybe dig out some of these huge hills. We can make as straight of a path as possible so that king doesn't have to go you know, all the way around in the most meandering way just to get to our town. And we're going to make it as easy as possible for him to come. Think about that as a metaphor for repentance. And I'm going to ask you, what in your life do you have that you and I still need to repent of? What are the obstacles, you might say, in your life that are in the way, that need to be bulldozed out, dynamited, blown up, removed for a straight path for Jesus to walk on in your life. You see, repentance is one of the things that is so vital and at the heart of Christianity, of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And, And what's interesting is when I see people new to Christianity, or when I teach people who maybe grew up in a church for a while, but they never really wrestled with this for themselves outside of just being brought to church with mom and dad. And and finally, at this point in time, God's bringing them back, and they're wrestling with this idea of repentance. Something almost always happens. In some way, it's verbalized in some form of, wait a second, so so if I'm going to be a Christian, if I'm going to, to be a follower of Christ, then does that mean I have to, I have to change does this mean I have to change my, my sexual lifestyle and I have to stop sleeping with this person? If I'm going to be a Christian, does that mean I have to change my habits with my money and my time? If I'm going to be a Christian, does that mean I have to change my priorities? Does that mean I have to change my words? Does that mean I have to change how I treat that person? And what you can see is like the, the gears. It's processing, the, the wrestling with this idea of repentance. It's, it's, it's hitting them. They're, maybe for the first time, they're actually starting to get it and struggle with it. And it's still something that Christians, today especially, need to wrestle with. A need for us to to think through and understand what repentance is. Ask yourself, is my life a life that would be characterized by a life of repentance? Because I'd, I'd say there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who, quite frankly, live a life uncharacterized by repentance. What do I mean? It's the, I'm a Christian. Yeah. Yeah, I believe in God. But I haven't actually shown up to a a group of brothers and sisters in Christ and been a part of the body of Christ to serve the body of Christ and encourage the body of Christ in a long time. Because if you ask them, quite honestly, well, I've got bigger fish to fry. I've got more things that are more exciting and more interesting to me but I'm a Christian because I know, I know the, the news of the gospel. Now, I'm a Christian, but I live my life 
pretty much however I want, with whomever I want, doing whatever I want to them, to my body, with my money, with my time, with my stuff, with my agenda, with my plans. But I'm a Christian because I know I'm a sinner after all, and I know that Jesus has forgiven me of my sins. And you know what I, you know what I sometimes just want to say to someone? I'm sorry, where's the repentance? Where's the, the humility and the understanding that we're not your own? Where, where's the, the submission to God and his ways? Because, because you know what those kind of things really are? It's like saying, oh, the king. Oh, the king is coming to our town. The king is coming to my life. Great. I'll change and prepare the way. No. No, he can come to me on my terms, in my own way. I'm not going to lift a finger. I'm not going to change anything. I'm not going to change any habits. I'm not going to change any lifestyles. He'll get to me on my own terms because really what you're doing is you're masking the fact that you don't believe he's king. You think you're the king. And you're going to still call the shots. You're going to still live life on your own terms. It's not repentance. But to think that you can just turn around and say, well, hey, it's okay. You know, I know the news of the gospel. I, I still know that Jesus has died to save me from my sins. To be able to regurgitate the definition of the gospel or to know it up here as a factoid and to believe in the gospel functionally and live it out and trust it in your life, those are not the same things. You can't say, well, yeah, I, I want Jesus as my Savior, I can basically do whatever I want and live however I want in a way that is no different than the rest of the world. I just don't want him as my king. You can't pick and choose. If he's your savior, he's also your king. He's both at the same time. And that means we have to repent. That means humbly bringing yourself low and admitting you don't have all the answers. That means humbly submitting to him. And I know that seems like death sometimes. I know that when you read his word, it means be ready to be offended. When you're reading his word, when you're studying the Bible, when you're hearing maybe a message like something like this or another pastor, and and you hear something that sounds a little bit offensive to your ears, that's probably a good thing. If you're reading the Bible and you're just constantly nodding along and saying, yeah, I agree with everything, you're probably not reading your Bible correctly. Because the sinful mind is hostile to God. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. It's hostile to God. What does it say? It does not submit to God's law. It can't. So expect there to be friction. Expect there to be this tug of war match in your life that says, I don't like that because sin, you've heard me say this, it's not just bad behavior. At its heart and core, it's a little tyrant, a little dictator that wants to say, I am king, not God. I'm going to call the shots, not him. And following Christ, he is going to reveal that and he is going to push back against that and he is going to say, no, 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 I'm the king. Prepare the way for me to come. And from the outside looking in, people look at that and they may say, you guys are crazy. Denying yourself, not indulging in yourself, living a way that that goes against your fleshy instincts and desires. Why would you give up so much pleasure? Why would you do all of these things? That seems oppressive to submit your will to someone else. It seems offensive to have to prepare the path, the way, the road. What Mark would tell you is not once you see the road that 
Jesus Christ came to prepare for you. Mark starts off his gospel with this message of John the Baptist, prepare the way, prepare the road. And yet all throughout this fast-moving gospel, Jesus is constantly on the move, on the road, on the path that would ultimately end in Jerusalem. Not to rule from a throne of power, but to rule from a cross. You might say, I, I can imagine the first audience, the Greeks who are reading this, who are so familiar with like, Roman emperors and Caesars, wait a second, he's going to the capital city not to rule from a palace throne, but a cross? What kind of a king would do that? A, a throne is a place of power and strength and glory. A cross is a place of weakness and humility, humiliation. What kind of a king would do that? kind of king who knows what's best for your life. The kind of king who saw that there was an obstacle on the path between God and you that you could not lift, you could not clear away, you could not prepare and move it out of the way. And he said, I'll clear. The kind of king who became your sin, who died for your sin on that cross, to clear the path, to remove your sin so there is nothing standing in the way between you and God to tell you because of me, your sins are forgiven. He's not a king who comes to demand and command and oppress. He's a king who comes to free, who comes to liberate. That's the kind of king he is. And that kind of changes the way we look at repentance, doesn't it? Giving up the control, giving up the autonomy to a God and letting him call the shots. Yeah, you can do that when you know what kind of a God he is. A God who went through all of this to bring you to life with him. That's what moves us to follow him on that road to take up our own crosses and to worship him. So I'm going to give you a little bit of homework. What do you need to repent of? You know your lives better than I do. What would it look like to continue carving out a straight path for Jesus to walk in on in your life? Maybe for some of you, that means working on forgiving that person, that grudge. Maybe for some of you, it means resetting those priorities. Maybe for some of you, it means just being honest, taking a good look at yourself. But don't run from it. Embrace it. Because Jesus embraced you. Don't run from that pain because Jesus thought you were worth giving up a throne in heaven to come and rule on a cross for you to save you, to free you from your sins. We don't repent so that we can be forgiven. We are forgiven. Jesus Christ has forgiven you. So repent. 
because God himself has come. He has liberated you from sin. He has brought you to God. That is the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God.